Are we live? Are we ready? We are live. Welcome oh to my I thought I had I thought I had more intro video there. I was, <laughs> plugging, I was plugging the computer in to make sure we don't run out of battery. I'm like, I got more intro video here. And then I'm That's like, oh wait, it's quiet. It's quiet in the headphones. We it's have a special treat today, a special episode. Uh, myself, Craig Siegel, co-hosted with Glenn Lundy uh, as our iconic host, Dave Meltzer, uh, is away right now. So we're totally excited, and we have an unbelievable guest to kick it off. Ari Wallach, the author and founder of Long Path Labs, uh, who just so happens to have a brand new book, Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors of Our Future Needs. Uh, this thing is paradigm shifting. Welcome to the show, Ari. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so tell us about this book. Right out the gate, the, the title caught my eye. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if not, you know, you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but I know a lot of people do. And sometimes the only thing people know about a book is when they see it at the Hudson Bookstore as I run into the airport. So I figured if I, even though the book is basically an antidote to short-termism, I recognize the moment that we're in. And if, I only, if I'm only going to have five seconds with someone as they're running to catch, you know, flight 27 to Atlanta, let them, let them see the cover, let them see this, and then think about what does it mean to become a great ancestor, right? More often than not, we are talking about our ancestors. We don't see ourselves as potential great ancestors. We just see ourselves as descendants at the end of something. We're very much at the beginning of something. So this book is about that. It's a, you know, the title gives it away. Well, what it really is, is about kind of a mindset that helps us think like great ancestors and more importantly, behave like great ancestors, be it with your family, your friends or your business or your philanthropy or in your politics. Um, and so, the, you know, the book came out not that long ago. It's doing great. It's amazing. The folks I'm hearing from, it could be members of YPO, uh, someone from the UN just contacted me. We're going to work with. So this actually resonates with people across the board. So I'm excited to be here and talk about it and talk about anything you all want. Yeah, yeah. I'm super excited to read it myself. Uh, all exciting stuff. What were you going to say, Glenn? No, I was going to say, Ari, it sounds you know fascinating. I love the paradigm shift of looking at it from becoming a great ancestor versus, like you said, looking at the history of our ancestors. I'm curious. Here we are in 20. 22 post-pandemic era, technologically advanced culture at this point in time. Uh, things are moving rapidly. And let's be honest, there's bazillions of books out there. Why this book? And more importantly, why now do you feel like people really need to dive into this? Well, excellent kind of question to start with. Look, the the, there are a lot of, I mean, my bookshelf over here has, is nothing but books about the future, right? And they're great. And I love them. And I use them in writing this book. But the fact of the matter is, I, I posit in this book that we are specifically to your, the second part of your question, we're in this thing, this moment that I call the intertidal. So for the past 400 mm. years, we've been kind of living by these narratives and these myths about how the world works, starting with the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. The fact of the matter is, those aren't working for folks anymore. You can see levels of trust in every institution across the board. Now, even the Supreme Court, which was kind of always above the fray, all those have bottomed out. So we're kind of in this in-between moment, what I call this intertidal, where the new rules haven't been written, the old ones aren't working. And so the book is not a, mm. a predictive book. I'm not saying, oh, 
the world is going to look like this, or even the world should look like this. What I'm saying is, if you want to play a role in helping shape what it's going to look like on the other side, which, by the way, this intertidal is another you know, 10 to 15 years, you should be thinking a certain way. Within that way, what I call the long path, long path mindset, there's some pillars. But outside of that, I'm not telling you what the future is going to be. This is not a crystal ball book. I have nothing against those. But I've been doing this for 25 years for the largest organizations on the planet. And what I can tell you is 99% of futures are the ones who are telling you what it's going to be. There's like the 1% of us who are saying it's not, it could be a couple of different ways, but here's a way to think like us. Here's the way to kind of visit the future. Think about the future you actually want, the examined one, not the one your parents or society told you you should have, and then figure out how to build it be it in your personal life, in your business, or in your politics. So that that's why this book is important right now, because it helps you through this moment. It's it's fascinating. You know, I, I, I'm getting emails and tweets and, you know, IMs from folks. And, and I and I said this, like, I'm getting it from, from priests, imams, and rabbis, but I'm also getting from founders in Silicon Valley. I'm getting it from parents. I'm getting it from people kind of across the, the spectrum of interest who are like, oh, you're putting a name to what I'm feeling right now, this idea of the intertidal, and you're helping me think about how I can act in this way that gives me a bigger purpose than just, and I'm not knocking this, than just like getting the perfect house or getting the perfect car or whatever it is. It lets me think about something bigger and that bigger is the future, right? And so how do you do things that put your actions into a context that go beyond just you? So that, I think that's why it's doing well, and that's why people are connecting with it, and I'm excited. Yeah, this is awesome. Glenn, great question, and Ari, like, what an awesome answer. And your energy is very contagious. I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you that. It's not surprising <laughs> that the book is doing very well. It seems like it's the perfect timing. What's really interesting about you that, that a lot of the listeners might not realize today is you had a really unique upbringing. Right. Yep. Like your father was a Holocaust survivor, which is something that I can relate to. And your mom, a respected SF artist. I'm just curious. I'm sure the audience is as well. By those two influences, your parents, how did that propel you to facilitate wanting to create a, and design a much better future? Look, I mean, you hit it. Look, my, my father was born in the 1920s as a teenager. He was forced into the Jewish ghetto in Poland. Right. Uh his mother and sister were sent to Auschwitz. His father was basically killed in front of him. He and his brother escaped the ghetto and fought with the Jewish underground and Nazi hunting after the war and finally made his way through Cuba, through Castro to Mexico, where he met my mom, who was kind of this renowned artist and visionary. And so the book is not just about the future. It's about kind of understanding our past, how it got us to the present. By doing that, you can you can future better, you know, thinking about the future as a verb. And so at my dinner table, right, every night, any, any topic of conversation, whatever it was, whatever was happening in the news, always existed in this like 100-year arc. Because there was my dad who would be like, well, this is what it was like in the 20s and the 30s, and here's how we got to this point. And then we would talk about whatever it was that was going on, be it the Cold War technology. And then my mom would say, okay, and where do we want this to go? What is this going to be like in 30 or 40 years? How does this manifest in people's lives? So whatever the conversation was, for me, it was always at least like 100 years, kind of going backwards 50, going forward 50. So it makes sense, I think, that this book was written as someone who's been kind of a, a working futurist for a lot of folks over a couple of decades, 
to write a book, Long Path, that kind of takes the, you know, my dad used to say the future started yesterday, right? And so the book very much kind of continues that, but expands it into a way that helps people kind of acquire the tools necessary to work in this moment. What an awesome answer. This guy is like, what are you smiling at? Guy? Man, it's just, it's, 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 it's fascinating. And I'm so glad uh, that we were able to connect. And Ari, I'd love to learn more about this word futurist, right? Because I, I, I hear it tossed around just a little bit. Uh, you know, Ross Dawson, they say Ross yep. Dawson is one of the greatest futurists Great of our time. And, um, you know, prior in, in the old days, a futurist would be like a, a Nostradamus, but Nostradamus didn't necessarily have the data that you yep. guys have today. So talk to me for those that in the audience maybe don't know, like what is you're 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 considered one of the uh, most uh, what's uh, altruistic. Maybe that's not the word I'm looking for, but you're you're considered one of the uh, professional futurists and respected futurist in this industry. What does that mean to actually be a futurist? And how do you see the world differently or uniquely that actually gives you that title to be able to do these things? Well, very kind words. And I, and I love Ross and I love his work. Um, look, to be kind of a working professional futurist, you're correct. We don't, we're not Nostradamus. We don't, we're not oracles. We're not <laughs> saying the future is going to be X or Y. Some people may do that, but they may not be employed for, for long doing this work. It's our job, and, and super privileged to do it, to kind of live in the future, to kind of be out 20 or 30 years. And what that means is we're kind of constantly scanning what's happening today. And some things may be weak signals, but they portend something that is going to happen or things that could happen. So an example of that, yes, we could talk about quantum computing or you know SpaceX and the technologies. An example that I often use is, I remember, you know, over the past probably 10 years, I'm walking around the streets of New York and I'm noticing more and more on Sundays, more on Sunday mornings, like there's no one at church. There's no one at synagogue on Saturdays. And so when we go and we look at the data, we see the fastest growing kind of cohort of people in America when it comes to religious preferences are marking spiritual, but not religious. Right. So you say, what, what does this have to do with the future? Right? Well, People are still going to look for their meaning, their purpose somewhere else. So as we see kind of classic church, synagogue, mosque attendance going down among people in their 20s and 30s, we see it going up in soul cycle and yoga classes and how they think about the big picture of the world. So you might think, well, we should just keep this isolated. That's an interesting antidote, antidote, Ari, but like, so what? But the fact of the matter is we now see folks, especially Gen Z, when they're thinking about where they want to work, especially in kind of larger organizations, the number one thing that they're asking for is a proper, healthy mental environment, right? So when I talk to folks in their 50s and 60s and I say that, that blow, they're like, what are they talking about? Why, why would that matter? That's not what work is for. That you, if you want that, that's for your weekends when you go to the church, synagogue, or mosque. And we're saying they're not going anymore. So you now have to build your organization to meet the needs of folks who are getting it over there. So what, what futures do is we connect the dots of things that seem very simple or barely, you can barely see them right now. But then we spend a lot of time thinking, what are those gonna look like further out? And then we build stories, we build scenarios. And from those, we help the folks that we're working with see themselves in those futures. Again, it's not about predicting, it's about thinking about if these different things are going to happen, how are you going to be successful in them? That that's what we do. I love yeah. that, man. 
Same. And, and guy, if the audience isn't like, Ari also lectures on topics such as innovation, AI, and the futures of public policy. Thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait personally to learn more and continue to connect to the audience listening. Uh, go get his book immediately. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Have my man. Back. Can't wait to read the book. Wow, man. That's the first gift? Yeah, a lot of energy. Oh, my gosh. This is going to be... This is going to be wild today, man. If that's, if that's guest number one, oh, my goodness. I got to tell you, right it's great to see you, brother. It's great to see you, you Craig. Yeah, man. It's great to see Always you, bro. Good to we, see got, you. We, 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 we go like this a lot. You and I go like this, like it, but it's hard to get yes. like this, you know, <laughs> lined up. So it's awesome to have you here. But, no, seriously, man, I'm going to go grab a copy of that guy's book. Uh, you know, these, these, these futurists of today with data, when you add data, man, it really – they they really can see so far into the future and help guide guys like you and me that are uh, trying to put our businesses together, trying to create our legacies, wanting to make an impact, you know, like it's, it's cool. So uh, that dude, that dude's got me hyped up, jacked up, and I'm, I'm ready to learn more about what he's got going on, but I'm also excited for who we got next on here. Uh, I was going to say that's going to be a tough act to follow, uh, but we have another bright light right here. Welcoming to the show, uh, David Weaver, the founder and president of Franchise Your Freedom. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, our pleasure. Where are you dialing in from? Uh, I live in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is up in the mountains. So we're out we're nice. 45 minutes or so from Aspen, if, if you know where that is. Yeah. Let's dive right in. Um, franchising process and services at Franchise Your Freedom. That's what I was most excited to ask you about today, amongst some other things. But I'm sure the audience is wondering, what exactly does that mean? And what is it all about Franchise Your Freedom? Tell us. So Franchise Your Freedom is really a, a, a combination of Helping people find find the right franchise is, is really what I do. And, and what I realized after doing this for about a decade is the reason people want to buy a franchise or want to start a business is they're looking for control and freedom in their life, right? And so um, that's kind of where Franchise Your Freedom came from. My goal is to help create educated buyers, in the franchise space, right? So how do you find the right franchise out there? And, and what is the process or philosophy behind doing that so that we can take this esoteric idea of, I, you know, I've always wanted to own my own business and there's 4,000 franchise companies out there. Which one's a good one, right? There are a lot of good ones and there are a lot of bad ones, but how would you know the difference if you're talking to a great salesperson? I mean, they're going to make them all look great. That's and right. <laughs> not great, right? Where some of them are just sales pitch and nothing behind it. So um, that's my goal. I get to work with people that are uh, have always wanted to own their own business, but didn't know how to do it. And I help create sort of a bridge or a path from something that I know and understand W2 income corporate job. Maybe I don't like it to something that I want, but I don't know much about small business ownership and, and, and how do you sort of, leave the security of that paycheck every two weeks to the opportunity of unlimited control over your time and money. Right. Yeah. yeah and I, can see, I can see how that step would be 
you know, going from W-2 to self-employed, it's a, it's a pretty big jump, especially if you just have a brand new idea, brand new concept, brand new product. Whereas going from W-2 into a franchise model, at least you know there's already a structure, there's already a system, there's already some processes, but you can still franchise your way to freedom. I think that's fascinating. David, when I was young, it's very interesting that I get a chance to meet you because I always wondered about this. But when I was a little bit younger, see, I, I moved from the West Coast to the East Coast. And in the move, I lost Jack in the Box. Jack in the <laughs> Box has my heart. I love the tacos. I love the breakfast sourdough, Jack. And so I grew up on Jack in the Box, and they just they don't have any in Kentucky in the state that I live in now. And so I actually went and looked into this whole franchise thing and was like, well, maybe I could bring Jack in the Box to Kentucky. And the model was like you had to open four of them within two years. You had to have a million, uh, a million in cash in the bank. Like, and I'm looking at this wide-eyed like, what? <laughs> no, 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 no. I just want to get a burger. I didn't, I didn't realize it was all of this. So I've always been curious, is, is, are, are, are some franchises just a lot harder to get into? Is there a reason there's no franchises like Jack in the Box in this area? Talk to me a little bit more how this franchise thing works and how a young person that maybe isn't, you know, well off and doesn't have a million in net can step into this world. That's a great question, Glenn. And, and really what that's one of the things that I help people to do is help them clarify what is the business model that you want to invest in. And part of that business model is what is your expectation for inputs and outputs? How much money are you going to put into this investment? How big a business do you want to have, et cetera. And I match that with, franchise brands that meet their investment criteria. So that's kind of the uh, part of that is the business budget, right? So what a lot of people don't realize is some franchise brands are built for sort of that owner operator, right? That mom and pop sort of owner. And some franchise brands are built for multi-unit franchise owners of a different franchise. So Jack in the Box, um, Panera Bread, um, uh, um Donut. Um, Duncan. Dunkin' Donuts. Thank you. Those guys, like Dunkin' Donuts was on the East Coast, but not on the West Coast. And, and about 10 years ago or so, they started franchising across the country. Um, they, they weren't interested in talking to anybody that didn't have, I think it was $2 million liquidity and 7 to $10 million net worth. Why? Because they didn't want the single unit franchise owner. They only wanted to work with people that had six Burger Kings or seven of this or 10 of that or whatever. So they wanted the established franchise owner in a given market to add a brand and rinse and repeat with a, with a well-established brand like Dunkin' Donuts. So um, that would be one reason, right? Um, another reason is sometimes they're just a bigger investment. Like, you know, a Burger King is going to have a standalone building, a Chick-fil-A, a Burger King, et cetera. Um, and so those are just bigger investments. Whereas if you're looking at a, uh, a Jimmy John's, we're just keeping it in the food realm, right? Uh, sure. Those are typically 1,500 to 2,000 square feet in a strip center. Um, and so that investment's going to be quite a bit lower than, say, a Burger King. So aligning the expectation of the candidate with the expectation of the franchisor is incredibly helpful to the candidate because now you're not just shopping forever. We're actually looking at opportunities that are available in your market, right? Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Talk, talk about a thorough response. That was great. And, and it's 
it's interesting because with your background, uh, who better of a choice as a franchise consultant that you've done it all between analyzing all the underwriting um, and, and really finding the right fit between franchisor, franchisee and the finance companies would be extremely credible. I'm just curious because a lot of people have an idea set out to want to, do a franchise, like maybe they want to start their own business, they don't know how, so they turn to this. What's the biggest misconception that you see with someone that wants to start out and own their own franchise? The biggest misconception, uh, probably the simplest one to say is that people are surprised at how much it costs to get a business started, right? They they think that, and, and this is a little bit, every industry has an underbelly. Franchising tends to under advertise what it costs to get in ten thousand dollars you can own a chick-fil-a it's like no you can't you can't um and so there's a little bit i'll take 10 i'll take 10 yeah exactly um and so what i try to do is bring a level of reality to to the stories and and prepare people for what it really looks like and and that also kind of helps set them for up for um whether or not they want to do it so you gotta you gotta manage expectations yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Chick-fil-A just now and it got me thinking. You also mentioned Burger King earlier. I know we're in the food world and obviously there's other franchise models that are outside of food. I think it's uh, easy for everyone to kind of connect on the on the food franchise model. Question for you. So when you go into the, the franchise world, here's what I've noticed. I've noticed no offense against the boys over there at Burger King. But when I get ready to pull into a Burger King Anywhere in the country, I'm like, it's going to take a long time. Service probably isn't going to be very great, but I really love that flamethrower burger, right? So I'm willing to sacrifice everything else to get to the burger. Now, when I pull into Chick-fil-A, my initially, I'm like, there's a long line out the door, but it's going to go fast. I know exactly what I'm going to get, and I love God's chicken, right? So I'm <laughs> curious, on the backside, is it something – do some franchises focus more on the people and training side and others focus like are more hands off? What, why is it that I'm getting, I'm getting the same experience, but it's a bad experience at one, a good experience at the other, but it's consistent across every one of the franchises across the nation. So I'm really curious what that, why those differences pop up. Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about, the answer is yes. Some franchise brands really focus on systems and quality control process, et cetera. And some don't do as good a job of that. Right. And, and more importantly, they hold their franchisees accountable to that franchise system process, et cetera, which then demonstrates brand recognition. Your brand recognition to Chick-fil-A is the line's going to go by quick. Right. Um, One of the examples I, I offer all the time as an example is, um, we go to McDonald's if we are traveling on I-70 or I-80 crossing the country. We go to McDonald's not because they have great hamburgers, but because they have clean bathrooms. If I have little kids, I go to McDonald's because their bathrooms are clean, right? Why? Because McDonald's has a really strict clean bathroom policy. And that drives brand recognition and memory in the consumer's mind. Um, and, and so... One of the things that I do as a consultant is let's focus on the business model more than the widget, right? It doesn't matter to me if we're talking about fitness or food or yogurt or, you know, kids tutoring. We want to focus on the business model 
the leadership team at the franchisor and the system that you're buying into, because all of those things are going to drive the brand recognition and some of these subjective things that people think about when they think of franchising. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's powerful. Focus more on the processes model than the product itself. That's something I think a lot of business owners could, could, uh, to, could, could put into place, not just in the franchise world. Right, Craig? Yeah. Hell yeah. And I like to use the word widget. I, I know we're getting to the end here, but I wanted to ask you, Dave, one thing that I found really interesting that a lot of people probably don't know when, when I started studying uh, Ray Kroc is that uh, he wasn't so much in the burger business as he was the real estate business. And he would own the land to all the franchises. I know that you're big into real estate amongst franchises. I'm just curious when you're consulting people that are, that are starting to get into it and let's say purchase a franchise, do you also suggest them to buy the land that goes with it? Um, yes, most people just don't have the the capital wherewithal to do the the Burger King or the the you know the Burger King Chick Fil A um, McDonald's standalone building. But what a lot of people can't afford to do is get into a service franchise, let's call it painting, right? And and then get into the flooring franchise and then get into a roofing franchise, et cetera, right? So you're stacking comparable or synergistic businesses. But why is that important to real estate? I'm a huge fan of owning the business and owning the real estate in two separate companies, but you own both, right? Because that way you can play both sides of the fence, as I call it. So if you get into a service-based franchise that needs warehouse space to operate the business, right, regardless of what it is, then you can buy a warehouse, you start the business leasing space, but get yourself into a short-term lease, like a three-year lease. That gives you enough time to get that business cash flow positive, making money. Then you buy the a, a larger uh, warehouse space, build the business to the second phase, then you start adding additional services, additional businesses. And now you've got your own little empire that completely flies under the radar, right? I love that strategy. And, and it's something that, that I learned when I ran the family foundry business back in Detroit. So um, once I understood kind of how the money works, it makes business a ton of fun. Yeah. I like how enthused you just got when you started talking about it. It's very obvious that you're passionate about this. Uh, you're sharp as a tag. And for the audience listening, go check out what DFS is going on, especially uh, if you're in the market for franchise or whatever the case would be. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I look forward to connecting with you further. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate you. Have a nice time. Well, 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 my man. Very interesting. Yeah, it's super. It's super cool, man. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I meant to get to. I'm gonna have to connect with David offline, and um, you guys all should probably do the same. But I'm, I'm curious, kind of timeline wise, you know, like if if I decided on a Tuesday or on a Wednesday, September 21st, 2022, like, hey, I'm I want to go into the franchise world. I wonder what the timeline looks like to like learn about it, find the right one, fund it, close on it, and you're like in it you know what i'm saying i wonder i wonder what that looks like because yeah, versus maybe your typical startup company yeah and it's also because a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs and start their own business but they're not necessarily sure uh, a franchise is kind of already a business that's set up and then you kind of have to use your leadership skills and, and build it out so very cool concept for sure yeah awesome i love that he's out there doing that too because you know you know you see it you see it craig you see it i see it you know you can 
there's there's lots of franchises around the United States of America, and some of them you can tell they're they're being run by starving artists, and other ones you can tell are absolutely out there thriving. And so the fact that he's in the mix and helping these entrepreneurs uh, get it rocking and rolling and make good decisions, I think that's really a valuable resource. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, man. So who we got next, bro? I'm excited. <laughs> Yeah, hey, look at this guy. <laughs> What's going on? What's up, Corey? Just when you thought it couldn't get better, uh, we're in for a special <laughs> treat today. Uh, we got Corey Himmel, the director of blockchain at Gigster. Am I pronouncing Gigster right? Gigster is right. Yeah, absolutely, man. Pleasure to be on. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I, I know the immediate question that the audience is pondering right now is, what is Gigster all about? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So we've been around for about 10 years now and have always um, focused on building emerging tech, but doing it a little bit differently. Uh, you know, when we were founded, our um, original founders saw that kind of the typical work model that we operate in is is broken. Uh, and in order to kind of support uh, emerging tech, which is very like hard to find skills, like very different methodology of working uh, that you needed to kind of, um, as cliche as it is, <laughs> to think different about how you approach software development. And so, uh, yeah, I've been with the firm for about seven years now. Uh, and we do a lot of, a lot of behind-the-scenes work um, in Web3 and blockchain, um, built or have been part of some of the biggest projects out there. And, yeah, I think that's a, a quick high level. 50,000 feet. Blockchain, yeah. Gigster, NFTs, Bitcoins, <laughs> cryptocurrencies, all yeah. these things came flying at us, man, out of nowhere. It was crazy. And I know that there's been underground people like you that have been in the weeds on this stuff for a really long time. But now it's all surfaced. You guys have sprouted. I was at an event in L.A. I actually had the opportunity to speak at uh, NFT LA was the event. And there was... Tens of like ridiculous amounts of people. I'm like, bro, how do you get so many people in this place? And I personally went on stage as a speaker and I said, just so everyone here knows, I am literally the dumbest person in the room. Like I'm looking at all this <laughs> tech. It's so freaking crazy, Corey. So will you help others like me that are really dumb in this whole blockchain <laughs> crypto crazy space? Help us understand why this particular emerging technology is so incredibly crucial to a solid future and foundation here in the United States of America and abroad. Yeah, of course. And I, I, don't, I don't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't downplay yourself there. You shouldn't downplay yourself. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually, it's actually pretty easy, right. To, to understand. And I think a lot of it gets, really abstracted away into like all of these crazy terms, right? Like DeFi, like ERC, crypto, like all of this stuff. But if you go back um, to the beginning and kind of like what is blockchain and why is it important? Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. And uh, you know, the best place to kind of start uh, is with the internet as we understand it today. Right. Uh, you know, the, the original internet for those of you out there, right. When it, when it first came online, it was all around, they call it like web one, you know, yeah. uh, you know, uh, where all the everything on the web was like static. You know, you go to a website, someone went in there and coded it and you just basically just read information that's on the web. And that was the first version of it all. Um, you know, this web two, which is where we have been living for the longest period of time, 
uh, was when like platforms came on board and allowed you to create content. So like Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, anywhere where like basically these businesses were there to just build the platform and then people like us create the content. Um, and all of that up until there was really based on like sharing and copying and pasting. And, you know, it's all about open information, share, 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 content, content, content. But there was no way to like understand like who owns what, right? Like, no, there's no way to track who owns a piece of content because you can copy it, you can share it. It's impossible, right? So the internet really hit this like ceiling of what it could do because until you can establish ownership, it's hard to create that or have the ability to create that next level of value, right? Um, so blockchain came along and, uh, you know, when it came out in 2009, uh, with Bitcoin, you know, again, a lot of people think about this and get wrapped up in the cryptocurrency side of the world, but uh, let all of that go. Right. And at its foundation, what blockchain does is allow you on the internet to prove where something came from. So no, no matter if people copy, share, paste it, move it all, all around, anyone can verify that you were the creator of a picture of a drawing of a post of a comment. Right. And when you think about that, when you think about the internet and being able to actually understand who created something and then derive value from that, it creates a, a, a huge area of possibilities. Right. And the sure. first one that kind of came out was, was cryptocurrency, but then you've got NFTs like the board apes and the crypto punks. And really the only reason that they have value is because of the blockchain and the fact that everyone can verify who owns that asset. So I can go and, you know, copy, right click and save a thumbnail of a board ape. Uh, but you can look at that and be like, you don't own that. You're, you're not the owner of it, uh, which again, you could never do before sure. blockchain came around. And that's, that's like, and that's, it's such like a, like an easy concept to understand just provides like validity of ownership on the web. Um, and that's, that's kind of what sparked a lot of this movement. And then since then, uh, has grown into a lot of different applications and use use cases and stuff up there, which has been fascinating to watch. I'm sure at the at the conference you saw quite a quite a spread of mind different blowing ideas. Man. Mind blowing, yeah. Mind blowing, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that, man. Like that's that, that and and break it breaking it down to the simple, right? Let's break it down to the simple. Yeah, Does that makes sense to you, Craig. It does. And to be honest, I'm, I'm so glad that you asked that question uh, because I'm sure a lot of people are wondering. And I, I've heard a lot of people talk about this, especially on the podcast and so forth. But I think that was the easiest to digest and simplify as I've ever heard. So I'll, I want to acknowledge Corey for that, which is awesome. I know that Gixa was acquired. I, I believe mm-hmm. it was in 2021, just last year. And, and, and I'm just curious, like what, when that happened, that transition how did that help you guys in regards to what you're able to do now from the investment of being acquired and so forth? Like, how can you accelerate the growth now? What's changed? Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, like I said, the, the company's been around for 10 years. I've been with them for seven. I've seen ups and downs and lefts and rights and U-turns and, you know, anywhere you want to take it. Uh, you know, when we were acquired by Ionic, um, you know, where the business had en- ended up, Right. Coming from. So we were like heavily funded out of the valley, you know, Andreessen, Redpoint, like all of the names you can post them on a board. They were all there and they were they were great to us. Like, you know, they got us up and off the ground and where we needed to go. But, um, you know, the the pressure from venture capital to 10x every single year is incredibly heavy. 
right? Uh, and you know, when we were um, when we were bought by Ionic and, and Andy Treba, or, or the the CEO of Ionic and now the CEO of Gigster, uh, you know, I, I was really concerned when they came in. I was like, I've I've seen private equity on TV. I know what happens, right? They come in and it's just the axe is coming off with your um, head off with your head man yeah exactly but um, <laughs> but they uh you know they came in with with a really really fresh perspective um and said look guys you know we're new here uh you know they 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 talked to the employees that have been there the longest said what is working and what is not working like what like what do you guys want to do um and you know that's for me in the position that i was in uh was kind of maybe the loudest made it work, but I was like, we need to do web three. And like, we need to think different on how we approach some of these market. And they said, great, let's do it. Uh, so it was this very like refreshing glass of cold water to say, okay, let's, you know, kind of clean the sweat off. Let's start from zero and let's start to turn this business into what we think and what it needs to be and kind of get rid of a lot of that baggage that we that have been accumulating for like years and years. Right. I mean, you think about a 10 year old company, um, you know, you have founder, CEO leave, you know, new people come in, they take a different spin. Uh, you have new executives come and go. They all have different spins and it starts to like build. And they basically came and shoved all that aside and said, OK, let's refocus and let's go from there. And since then, we've been growing fast, extremely, extremely fast again, um, you know, profitable, running a good, good business. Uh, so it's been a it's been a very positive experience. It's a really exciting time for you guys. Yeah. 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 So, Corey, talk to me about this. Um, who hires Gigster? Like, who's the, who's the, who, who would be somebody that would need your services, right? Who hires Gigster? And why you guys versus maybe any other company in this blockchain world? Yeah, of course. So, generally, when we work with customers, I mean, the, the line that, um, <laughs> that my, and my CFO and legal probably don't like me to say is that, you know, we provide like guarantees, right? You know, we've, we've done a ton, a ton of projects. Um, you know, we invest really, really heavy in tooling. Um, you know, we do a lot of research with Stanford and Berkeley around the psychology of distributed teams, how they work, how you can stay ahead of risk uh, and invest that all back and back into our, our, our platform. And so when companies come to us to work with us, uh, they're usually really focused on emerging tech. Um, and it's skills that they can't hire for. And it's extremely risky to build if you've never done it before. Uh, you know, there's a study by Gartner, you know, that's 64% of IT leaders don't adopt emerging tech, not because they don't have the budget and not because there's not a need. It's that they literally can't find the people to do it. Uh, and we've built a process and a platform that's attracts those, you know, kind of crazy out of the box, bleeding edge engineers, um, and then wrap this kind of structure and tooling around it that let us manage them at scale really, really well. Uh, so when companies come to us like, look, we want to build, you know, we're a hundred year old brand. Like we want to build an, an NFT marketplace, like NFT top shot, like, but our uh, NBA top shot, like we don't like our IT team has no idea. Our marketing doesn't know how to even target, you know, customers for this. Our finance team is trying to understand how to like rev wreck this stuff. You know, our treasury is like, What's going on, guys? Right. Uh, so that, you know, typically cu customers come to us and say, hey, can you help us build and like educate and also strategize around how do we enter into these new markets over the next three, five, 10 years? Uh, right. And it's, you know, it's everyone from, from it's, and it's all the way down to like startups, mid-market, 
uh, but a lot of like larger enterprises that are that are looking to de-risk their entrance into new tech spaces. Yeah, they're like, we can hear the buzz, we can hear the news, we know we need to step this way, but we have no clue what's going on. We don't know how to swim, so let's get somebody who can teach us how to swim. I love that, Corey. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Also, I want to acknowledge Corey. Uh, I'm sorry for the other guests, but he's got the coolest background of anybody so far. <laughs> Dude, it's amazing. Really? Oh, I'm like fascinated by it. I feel like I'm yeah. in the metaverse right now. That's I'm in the, hey, I'm that's, in the metaverse with Corey. That's the hey, that's the that's the vibe. You know, that's the that's the you gotta we be you gotta vibe. you gotta build the brand right. The brand's that's gotta it. go with the message. And, and it's contagious. So I definitely want to acknowledge you for that. I know we're getting to the end here. Uh, short answer, uh, but very powerful. With all the cool, exciting developments that you guys have going on right now, what personally excites you most right now? Excites me most right now. Um, you know, uh, I think the most. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I, I think that the most interesting trend um, that we're going to see going into Q4 uh, and especially into uh, 2023. Um, is going to be the adoption of um, short-lived uh, NFTs from companies, uh, which really kind of goes against what a lot of that's going on out there. A lot of people think that you get an NFT, like a board Ape or a CryptoPunk, and it's got to live forever. By no means, definitely not. Uh, and there's a whole slew of things coming that are going to really, really... Um, drive mass market adoption uh, of the tech and it's, it's starting it's starting and keep an eye on it don't uh, don't, don't sleep on it i think that's really cool Corey, because one of the things i always thought about when i saw people launching nft projects is i was like do they realize they're signing up for like a lifetime business because th- those people that buy those nfts are going to expect you to continue just like a stock a share of stock in any company you expect that company to grow to thrive to give me an roi like that's the expectation and i don't think a lot of people realize they're like oh this would be cool let's just drop it real quick and uh we'll make some money and maybe maybe some people will make some money too but then three months later the people are banging on the door like hey what are you doing where are you at <laughs> right and six months and nine months and 12 so that really sounds mm-hmm. fascinating short-term nft i'll be on the lookout for that Corey, thanks for sharing yeah. you should that, that was an awesome nugget. I, I genuinely loved this conversation. And thank you so much for joining us, Corey. Uh, I know Glenn and I are both excited to learn more. And, and for the audience listening, go support Corey and check out the cool stuff he has going on. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Corey. Appreciate yeah, thank you. you. Right. Craig. Yeah, this is great stuff. I was yeah, definitely yeah. by his background. But to be honest with you, blockchain, obviously very trendy. Everybody talks about it. It was a great question by you. And the way he simplified it w- was definitely, for me personally, uh, the easiest to digest I've ever heard. Yeah, I agree. And quick story. He just brought back a nightmare for me. We were on Clubhouse Breakfast with Champions. This was back when Clubhouse had just started hitting, bro. And a bunch of monkeys came into my room. They invaded the stage and were making all these monkey sounds. And I asked my buddy, William Tong, I was like, what is that? Because he had a little monkey profile. And he said, we're launching an NFT today. And I said, Oh, okay. I don't know what the heck that means. He said, yeah, it's called the Board 8 uh, Yacht Club. He said, you should buy one. They're $200. And I was like, I'm not spending $200 bucks on some freaking picture of a monkey. Well, fast forward, bro. Those things are trading for four, dollars $500,000. And I was like, nope. So it's a, a, a reminder to me, learn about these emerging technologies so you don't miss incredible opportunities 
Like I had to buy a board ape for two hundred bucks. Hell yeah! Isn't that crazy? I love it. And we have one more guest, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> there he is. What's up, guys? Batting. Hey, look at this guy's name, Glenn, with two ends because he's twice as nice. There's only one way to spell it. There's only one way to spell it. That's, That's it. Right. That's right. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Um, last but certainly not least, uh, Glenn Cardone, president and CEO of Red Chocolate. Let's start right there. Honestly, one of the coolest names I've ever heard. Love the background. Love the shirt. What is Red Chocolate? You know, it's a great question and one that's asked uh, often as people get to know us here in the United States. So Red Chocolate, pretty simple. We're a European crafted chocolate, no sugar added, non-GMO, uh, certified green facility. The whole idea, the whole belief in red chocolate is to be able to indulge with no guilt. So, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, I was listening to the last guest, which was awesome. And, uh, you know, when you think about all the things you're trying to accomplish, the things you try to do, ultimately, what is it? Satisfaction, right? You're trying to satisfy a need. Well, that's what Red stood for 20 years ago when it was started. I happen to have the uh, the honor and the pleasure of bringing it here to the U.S. about three years ago. And uh, it's been a hell of a ride, guys. It's been a great journey. I, I've been in the food business for 30 years. And this is by far the most fun I've ever had being able to help build an organization. It's been awesome. And I got to tell you, man, I love some chocolate. I'm a sweets guy. I'm a candy guy. I'm always eating something. Like I told my assistant today, why is there not a bag of Tootsie Pops in the counter, in the cupboard right now? She's like, Tootsie Pops. I'm like, we should always have Tootsie Pops, right? And we have M&Ms. Like, I'm just a candy sweets guy. And so I'm going to be honest, Glenn, when you say no sugar, no GMO, stuff like that, I'm immediately like, I'm out. This is disgusting. I need my stuff. So talk to me, Glenn. Sell me on how red a, a sweet guy like me. Mm-hmm. Tell me the truth, man. Does it taste so, like what? Like tell me, man. Does it taste like dirt, or am it, I still gonna get what I need? So that's a that's an excellent excellent question. Let me let me break it down for you. So why do you love sweets? Because it's about the satisfaction. It shouldn't be about the sugar because nobody wants to crash. Nobody wants yeah. the cavities. Nobody wants the fat. You don't want everything that comes with raw sugar, but you want the satisfaction. You want that desire to be fulfilled. And that's what red does. Cause you're right. There's a lot of stuff out there. Let's be honest. I'd rather eat the package than the stuff. that's inside. <laughs> that's I'm the first right. one to read it. And luckily <laughs> for me, for what I've been able to accomplish uh, within my career, I, I don't have to bring, and excuse my vulgarity, crap to the United States. There's enough crap out there if you get my drink. <laughs> so when you when you enjoy red, it's not about the sweetness. I want you to think about, you know, when you sit down after a long day and you have a beautiful glass of red wine and you enjoy it and you get the different notes. Now imagine if I took like seven pounds of sugar and put it in that wine mm. because that's the difference. So what you when you look at European chocolate, it's about drinking that beautiful wine. You get that body of the coca, and then you get the hints. Just like in a red wine, the different nuttiness and those kind of things, it's the same thing with red chocolate. You don't need sugar. We've all been mentally beaten over the years thinking that I need to have that sugar high. It's not the sugar high you're looking for. It's the indulgence high. It's the enjoyment high. 
So when you get a beautiful mix of coca and other ingredients that you can enjoy, that you can get that creaminess, that you can get that beautiful aroma, that you can get those tastes from. You know, red holds 11, pat- uh, 11 patents globally. And it's all from the way we've designed it and crafted it to how we do it. We just came out with a product. I happen to have one here, which is our red chocolate blonde. Now, what blonde is, very simply, it's a caramelized white chocolate. Now, Glenn, what's what's caramel? Caramel sugar, right? Well, we're no sugar addict. So what we've done is we've actually taken milk, and I'm going to bring you way down into the weeds here. We actually caramelized (laughs) milk from Holstein cows. What we've done is we take that milk, and we whip it at a certain temperature for a certain speed, for a certain length of time, and we pull the natural sugars out of it, and then we pour it into a white coca base. So what happens is, very simply, is you get that blonde look. And I will tell you, when you eat this, Glenn, if you haven't had a chance to eat this, there is nothing like it in the United States. And there will be nothing like it because we hold the global patent on it. So I I'm love sold. it. Ship it. Ship Glenn, it to the house. I love people like you because I meet more people like you than others who say, yeah, this is exactly what I want. I love the challenge because red always wins in a challenge. Mm, and that's what I love. I love this guy. Yeah, me too. Uh, sold as well. Uh, you're so passionate about this. And, and you know what the coolest part is? It, it, it's a double whammy. You're saving lives, essentially, right? Because people say sugar kills and so forth. Uh, you have all the pens. You, you're the market leader. Uh, you're a big thinker. It's very obvious. Where do you want to go with this? And what is the vision like for the next five, 10 years? Oh, you know, so our goal is to be able for everybody in the United States to be able to experience red chocolate. You know, we talk to about 3 million people every week within our social media channels. And I've got an amazing marketing group who is does a phenomenal job getting the message out there. You know, I don't look at it as 5, 10, 15 years. I look at it as a journey. Fellas, I'll give you an example. So I happen to be traveling and uh, I get a, a, a an email from a person who bought our product. It said, look, I, I don't know if you're ever going to see this, but I just wanted to let you know, I'm pre-diabetic. This happened. I heard about this from a friend of mine who saw it on the Home Shopping Network. We happen to be the top chocolate sold on the Home Shopping Network. Uh, and so, you know, I, I figured, let me try it. So I went to my Ralph's. It's a grocery store chain on the West Coast. And, and I picked it up. She, and she wrote, this chocolate is going to change my life. That's the journey, guys. I'm not a transaction. Red isn't a transaction. We want people to come into the Red family. We want you to stay. We want you to take the journey with us. So what do I want to be in five and 10 years? I want to be able to walk down the street and people say, you made a difference in my life. I mean, ultimately, that's what I want to do. I think that's what everybody wants to do. We want to make that difference. You know, I've been asked, uh, so how have consumers changed over the last 20 years? What's the difference? Consumers haven't changed. The way you deliver the message has changed. Their specific needs may have changed. But ultimately, if you think about it, what is it? It's satisfaction. How are you going to satisfy me? If you invite me into, into, into my life, if I take you and bring you in my life, do you satisfy my needs? Are you worth it? And the journey, five to ten years, it's for more and more and more people to say, yeah, I'm glad I let you in my life. You made a difference for me. That's right. It's all red is, man. Yeah, that's awesome, Glenn. You know, I've always said we have a born on date. We have an expiration date, that dash in the middle. 
is impact. What yeah. kind of impact can you make in other people's lives, right? And that's what you yeah. guys are doing. So I'm curious, Glenn, you guys have been uh, depriving the United States of this chocolate for uh, decades on decades now. Why, 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 why did you decide we are now, we're now allowed to get privy to this uh, awesome red chocolate? Good question. <laughs> Good question. You know, I, it, it really was the acceptance, because if you think back 20 years ago, Glenn, you could have been eating dirt and it probably was better than most of the things you tried. And it, and it took time for the for the American consumer to say, you know what, I think I'm going to raise my expectations a little. Mm -hmm. And with that came different organizations, different companies with the right pieces. So I felt the time was right because of what I saw the consumer looking for. The consumer wasn't looking for that sugar laden product anymore. They said, you know what? I still want to indulge and I still need to indulge. And I still deserve to indulge. But how do I do it the right way? And so that's where Red fit in. So, you know, it's funny. I came in and, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball because when I brought the organization over here to the U.S., it took about six months to build the infrastructure, the sales, the marketing, supply chain, all those pieces. And then we went live. And luckily for us, three months later, we went into a global pandemic. I couldn't have timed it any better. At this point, everybody decided, you know what? I'm not going to go to the grocery stores anymore. And so if you think about where most of your brands are born, so to speak, it's right. in the grocery trade. Right. And that's where you got to sit down and hunker down. And a lot of companies, you know, the whole Rome is burning. I'm not going to watch everything. They're not here anymore. Other companies are large enough that they could weather the storm and feel the pain, but still live through it. And then companies like ours said, you know what? We still want to get our message out. It's still important. You know, it's it's luckily for me, I've got an amazing team that's part of Red Chocolate that we've been able to bring from the U.S. Because this isn't all Glenn. I just happen to be honored to lead it. And so, you know, when we sat down and we said, okay, we're still going to do it. And that's when we decided to partner with groups like the Home Shopping Network, you know, with our, our whole all our online platform, all those different pieces. What it, it allowed us to do was continue to get that message out. So I think it was about timing. It truly was. It was all about timing and knowing that red was right for what the consumers were looking for. And luckily it was right. Well, I mean, I, I'm excited myself to uh, be introduced to this red chocolate world. Craig, I've heard of white chocolate. I've heard of dark chocolate. I've heard of regular chocolate, but I ain't never heard of red chocolate. No, not yet. But the audience sure has tonight. And, and you mentioned that timing is everything and, and isn't life all about timing, right? Yeah. And you're available right now and, and the world is available for what you're offering. And I, again, I just want to acknowledge again what is so special about it is not only does it probably taste unbelievable, and I can't wait to try it myself, um, but it's healthy. It's a great option. In fact, uh, based upon how passionate you are about it, and it just makes sense, I, I think this is the future. And for everybody listening out right now, uh, what is the best way to go consume some? Is it on the website? So, yes, we're on red-chocolate.com. Best spot to reach it from there. From there, we've got store finders. We're in 12,000 doors across the United States. We're partnered with hsn.com. There's a myriad of ways that you can get us, whether you want to go to the store and enjoy a journey, or if you want to just sit at home and have it delivered to your door by a single knock. We've got many ways, many options. Glenn, you're on fire and you're just getting warmed up. Genuinely, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and I'm excited to thank you further. Have an unbelievable night. 
Thank you. We'll see you next time. Glenn, pleasure to meet you, sir. Yeah, man, that guy right there. I don't know if the chocolate's any good or not, but that dude is a salesman. So old, man. He's so passionate about it. I freaking love his fire. That's what What an awesome show today. Four awesome guests with with four different concepts, um, but all intriguing. What was your favorite takeaway from tonight, Glenn? Well, you know, you can go, we go, we go from talking about chocolate, right? That, that, uh, red chocolate we've never heard of. We were over in the crypto world for a little bit. We were hanging out over on the franchise side. Uh, all, all, all fascinating. Me personally, I don't really see a franchise model in my future. I will learn about some emerging technologies, but I'll probably let my kids take the lead on all of that. The chocolate and my guy, Ali, at the very beginning. Those are the ones that have probably fascinated me the most. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, read Ali's book about the future and really learn more about this long, uh, long path that he has mapped out there in the book. I'm excited to read that. And then I think while I'm reading the book, I'm going to try some of that red chocolate. Yeah, hell yeah. I couldn't agree more. Uh, like you said, uh, Glenn was a heck of a salesman, but ultimately I think it's really good what he's doing and the message behind it. Um, which is something we could probably all do a little bit better if we're being honest, is eat a little healthier. Uh, Thank you guys so much for joining us. We'll be back next episode of Office Hours, most likely with the iconic big bad Dave Meltzer. That's right.